The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone, to the 10th episode of the Keep or Cut podcast, a proud member of the Pitcherless podcast channel. You can follow us at, at Keep or Cut. You could follow my co-host, Chad, at, at Chad Young, and you can follow me at, at Pete B Baseball. Last time we recorded, the baseball season had not begun yet. We were yet to have any actual data, and it was brutal, Chad, right? Because we we had a shortened season last year. We did not have a proper warm-up. And now we actually have some data. Yeah, it was just been waiting, <laughs> just waiting. And it's not just the data. It's like watching real games again. It's it's always great when, when the games start again. I get to sit down on my couch and turn one on. And I do think, you know, last year I pretty quickly got used to watching games without fans. And it sucked that I couldn't go to any games last year. But, you know, you're sitting in your couch watching TV. You're like, okay, they got the cardboard cutouts, whatever. I'm, I'm sort of good with this now. Man, it does make a difference when there's a crowd there. And the real crowd noise, even the 10,000 fans, whatever most of these stadiums are allowing right now, it's so nice. It's so nice. It really is. I mean, I, I noticed that so much with basketball, especially not that, you know, we're, we're talking basketball here, but with baseball, it was almost like, okay, I guess we were, we were used to it by then, you know, in the sports world that when the baseball season rolled around, it was like, all right, yeah, there's no fans. And Basketball just felt like like such a drag. And so seeing fans back in the stands, it, it really does. It just makes a difference from a spectator point of view at home. Like it it really does make a difference. And I did. I just sounded like such a super nerd because we love baseball so much. And I'm like, we have data. But yes, <laughs> the most important thing is that we have games. Um, I've watched it's pretty much every inning of the Red Sox so far. Uh, four game winning streak, baby. Here we go. World Series right around the corner. But Chad, you know, a few episodes ago, I was joking about how much I loved the Astros and and it was meant to be a joke, but I've watched so much Astros because in my favorite league where we only start nine hitters, four of them are Astros. And I got to say, it's actually working out pretty nicely. Yeah, the Astros look pretty good. There, there's a bunch of guys I, I've got. I've, I've been I've stayed away from the Astros the last few years, mostly because I think they've been overhyped. Like there was so much talk about how great that offense was. And I think it resulted in every player getting like a 10% boost in what people thought they were going to do. And I was just like, everyone was like, Altuve is an MVP candidate and Correa is going to be an MVP candidate. And it was like, eh, no, they're both very good balls, ball players, but they're not that. And then this year, I feel like sort of the worm, worm turned on them a little bit, right? And everyone went, you know, maybe it's the trash can thing. Maybe it's the fact that they all had terrible years last year. Like, I don't know what it was, but all of a sudden I felt like everyone was like, I don't know, maybe Altuve's done. Maybe is never going to live up to what he's capable of. And I was finally like, all right, fine. This year I'm in. And so I do have, I've got Jordan Alvarez on a team or two. I've got Altuve in a couple places. I've got Correa in one team. And they're all, they're all hitting. Yeah, they're smoking it. They're smoking it. And I, and I actually agree when you really think about it. It's like Altuve was up there rivaling Trout for a while for that number one spot. I shouldn't say for a while, for a season. Otherwise, it hasn't really been like elite, elite. It's just been like a, a bunch of very good hitters. But anyway, we don't, need a, we don't need to dive down that wormhole. And I definitely don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about just our teams. But Chad, do you have both Eloy Jimenez and Fernando Tatis Jr. in our community or staff league? 
it's the staff league and it's oh my god it's super frustrating because like that league you know I, I go into every league obviously you always want to win your leagues right why play if you're not playing to win and um but i'm also a i, I want to have fun and i want to enjoy my teams i want to cheer for guys i like and so like the community league that you and I are both in. I made a point in that league of like, I'm just going to draft dudes I like and I'm going to have fun with this. And if I don't win, I don't win. I want to win. I'm going to try to win, but I'm going to make sure it's fun. That staff league, the way Pitcherless does their staff leagues, we're in this like entry level league. We're new guys. And so they were like, here, <laughs> go go play in this entry level league. And if you're good, we may invite you up to the big time. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to win this league. I'm going to go out. I'm going to build the best team. I'm going to get invited to one of those bigger leagues. And we're like less than a week into the season and my first and third round picks are done. <laughs> and oh. so we'll see. Maybe it's, you know, they, now they're saying Tatis could be back in a week. So who knows with him? Um, I'm a little bit terrified that the Padres are going to bring him back and he's going to be, he's going to light the world on fire for a month or two. And then this is going to happen again. And then, then you get into questions about like, will this ever heal? Will he ever be the same hitter again? And I'm just, as much as I want that team to win, uh, it would be fine with me if if the Padres were like, guess what, Chad? We don't care about your fantasy team. <laughs> we just invested three hundred million in this dude, and if we have to give up, like, if you have to give up this season of him, that team is good enough to make the playoffs without him. And that seems like a like you don't want to just give him up, but man, if you could give him up for the next three to four months, maybe get him back in time for the playoffs and feel confident that this isn't going to be an issue for the next 13 years. Just take care of the guy. Right. Uh, but I don't know. But yeah, that's, that's my, that team I was like, all right, I lost my third round pick in Eloy. I'm not going to complain about that. You got to, you know, guys lose picks all the time. You got to bounce back. <laughs> And then I lost my first round pick like a week later, and it's like, all right, well now I'm now I'm going to complain. <laughs> this is this is a little ridiculous. And the first week of matchups isn't even over. I mean, that's that's no. just that's just horrendous luck. For what it's worth, I I completely agree with you though on Tatis Jr. Please please shut him down and give him the surgery. I, well, let me pause on saying give him the surgery. I, I, I'm not a doctor, and going under the knife, especially shoulder stuff, anything like that, like whoa, that's a that's a big deal. But if surgery is unavoidable because of this injury, which is the vibe that I got. I mean, this is the same thing. Chris Towers talked about this on FBT. This is the same thing that Hanley Ramirez went through. And he ended up having a couple of good years after the surgery, but then it completely derailed his career. Shoulder, shoulder injuries ultimately ended what, what could have been a Hall of Fame career. I don't want to see that happen to Tatis Jr. So fantasy teams be damned. You know, let's let's make sure this guy is good to go. But anyway, Chad, we, we've talked a lot about, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but I, I talked about how excited I was about data. And even with that said, we really don't have much. And yet the theme of today's episode is talking about guys who, based on this very limited amount of data, we're keeping an eye on. I don't want to say that we're like heavily interested or heavily not interested because you can't with this much information. But bottom line, Chad, my question is, with such little data, how do we approach today's episode? How do what should what should listeners be looking for when we talk about these players? Yeah, I think the key right now is to not overreact. It's been a week, and and for some teams it hasn't even been a week, right? The Nats and Mets have barely played, so don't overreact. Don't don't go out there and assume that you know Johnny Cueto is going to win the Cy Young this year because he absolutely dominated the Rockies yesterday. You can assume that. That Joe Musgrove's going to win the Cy Young. That's going to happen. That that no hitter was not only super fun, but he is just so so good. He actually might win the Cy Young. So if you want to make that assumption, I'm good with it. But don't make it about Johnny Cueto. But don't overreact. Don't don't react like we've we we actually have learned almost nothing. The other thing I would do is I would focus on numbers that might matter. And the numbers that might matter for me, plate discipline metrics tend to stabilize pretty early. We are not yet far enough in the season for even those to have stabilized yet. But if a guy is seeing a big change in his walk rate, in his strikeout rate, in his chase rate, which is a thing that a, a guy can control pretty easily, not easily as in it's easy to fix, but it's within their power. Those kinds of things are really interesting to me more so than anything else. I'm also interested in the stat cast data from the perspective that it gives us a sense of like, has this guy really hit the ball as well or as poorly as his stats suggest. However, there's a big caution with the the Statcast data. I don't know if you do you follow Alex Chamberlain on Twitter. If you don't, you should. At Dolph Holdhagen is his 
handle. Good luck finding that. You can look for Alex Chamberlain. You'll find him. But he has been talking about this a lot. But the, the new ball that was supposed to deaden, it's not necessarily doing that. And we're actually seeing exit velocities that are up. And so when you see a guy having a new max exit velocity, it's not necessarily the sign you think it is. And so I like looking at max exit velocity right now because it's a singular data point. A guy who hits the ball super, super, super hard. And we're going to talk about one of these guys later in the episode. Like that's a thing he did that it's not a sample size question. (laughs) Your max exit velocity only takes one. However, I'm looking at StatCast data and max exit velocities and things like that this year in relation to other players this year and not as much yet in relation to past years. And the reason is what appears to be happening with the new ball is that it is bouncier. And so it is coming off the bat harder. And so exit velocity, which is measured at the bat basically, is up. But the raised seams may or may not be increasing drag. And if they're increasing drag, what you may see is the ball is not traveling as far, right? It slows down quicker. It gets knocked down quicker. But the result of that is like, I don't know, Major League Baseball is handing out max exit velocities like they're candy. Like everybody gets one. And so if you see a guy like, oh, his exit velocity is up and his XWOBA is up and like XWOBA is based on that. And so XWOBA may not have normalized yet. Like there's all sorts of stuff out there that I'm just like, I don't know if a guy hitting the ball, quote unquote, harder this year is actually a sign of anything other than a bouncier ball. I do know that if a guy is hitting harder, hitting the ball harder than other players this year, that is interesting to me. Changes in percentile are interesting to me. And so that's the kind of stuff I'm looking at in the early going. Yeah, no, that's that's all good. I And I think it's a good point when looking at max exit velocities, something I guess I wanted to add rather is that like, don't compare to last year. That's the key here. Because if you see, and I would wait, you know, we don't have a whole lot of data points like we've said a thousand times already. But if in like a month, a new category added to the Statcast sliders is max exit velocity. So you can you can clearly see how an individual player's max exit velocity ranks in comparison to his peers this year. Because to me, that will still matter, especially when everything begins to stabilize. Because if the ball is more bouncier for everybody, then those higher max exit velocities will still you know be an interesting data point. But it, like you said, it may not necessarily correlate with power as much because there may not be as much drag. Nevertheless, it's it is up this year, and I've noticed a lot of the max exit velocities this year. Have well, have been on ground balls. Maybe that has something to do with the seam. I I have no idea. Uh, I'm not going to go down that scientific route, but I know that a lot of them have in fact been ground balls. So this early in the season, it's cool to see them. Like uh, the first player that I'm going to talk about has a max exit velocity of 110 miles an hour this year, which for this particular player would definitely raise some eyebrows. But if everybody's is around there, you know, in a month, then what what really is the big deal? How does that necessarily stick out? So let's dive in, uh, Chad. We each came up with a with a series of players. Who is one that you wanted to start things off with here? Since we are talking about max exit velocity, uh, we'll start there. And so I, I was looking at the <laughs> hardest hit balls of 2021. So again, not comparing a guy's max exit velocity to the past, but as of last night, and I think this may be before last night's data was added, so if things changed, I apologize. It is currently Saturday, April 10th, so this is as of Friday, April 9th. The hardest hit balls of 21, here are the guys who hit them. Giancarlo Stanton, Nelson Cruz, Carlos Correa, Giancarlo Stanton, Bryce Harper, Giancarlo Stanton, <laughs> Giancarlo Stanton, and Willie Castro. And, and so you look at that list, it's like one of these things is not like the others. Um the one that's actually most not like the others is Giancarlo Stanton, who is just a superhuman baseball masher. <laughs> uh, but Willie Castro certainly stands out in that list for me. He's a guy, he had a, had a bit of a breakout last year. He looked awfully good doing it. And I had him, like, I, he was a guy I picked up in a couple leagues last year and sort of rode through the hot streak and then was torn on what to do with him this year. And some places I kept him, some places I didn't. His early stat line is kind of, ugly. He's got a 284 Woba um, despite a 364 BABIP. He has a 0% home run per fly ball rate. But he also has hit one of the 10 hardest balls of the season. 
Uh, his exit velocity is up. And while I said I wouldn't, I didn't want to compare to past years, his exit velocity last year was 85.4, which is pretty low. This year it's 90.5. And while I don't know what the ball has done, I don't believe the ball has increased average exit velocities by five miles per hour. And so I am relatively comfortable looking at Castro and saying he's actually hitting the ball harder than he did last year. I, I don't know if that's going to translate for him. We'll have to see. I think right now he's hitting slightly more fly balls, but it's such a small sample that it almost doesn't matter. Uh, the thing that's most intriguing, as I mentioned, I like to look at that plate discipline stuff because it's something players can really work on and control. His walk rate is down, but so is his strikeout rate. His strikeout rate, his two sort of previous major league experiences, he had 110 plate appearances in 2019, 140 in 2020. He had a 30.9% strikeout rate in 2019, 27.1 in 2020, and now is down at 23.3 this year. He's also had his O swing rate, his chase rate, go down from 42.2 to 41.1, and now down to 35.5 this year. He's swinging at pitches in the zone more. Uh, he's also making contact at a higher rate, and so his swinging strike rate is down. And so I look at all that, and it's like, yes, it's early for that to stabilize. Yes, there's still questions to be answered, but there's a lot of really positive signs, right? He's doing a better job controlling the zone. He's doing a better job control uh, making contact. He is making elite-level max exit velocities so far. And so all of that is enough that I'm just – I'm watching him a little bit closer. You know, He's the kind of guy who had he gotten off to a really bad start. The teams where I had him, I might have moved on. And and I would have sort of taken him off my watch list in other places. Now he's a guy that in shallower leagues, I think he's still more sort of a watch list option. Like there's so many good shortstops out there that I'm not sure he's quite bubbled up to like 12 team, 23 man roster redraft. I'm going to gonna add him. In auto new, he's rostered in 88% of leagues. So he's probably not a free agent in your league. If he is a free agent in your league, I would grab him now. Uh, his, his numbers are down. I think people will glance at him quickly and sort of let you have him cheap. And if it doesn't work out, you can move on. If it does, you're going to end up with a cheap middle infield play in auto new that you can use for a good long time. If he is rostered, I would just keep an eye on what happens. Cause if he maintains the strikeout rate and he continues to hit the ball hard and the stats don't rebound right away. There may be a buying opportunity for him in the next couple of weeks. I don't think we're there yet because I don't think his I don't think the teams he's on are going to give up on him yet. But I'm I'm watching him. I'm not you know he's not a guy that I'm saying like oh I got to go get him now. If I don't get him, I've I've blown it. But he's really interesting to me because of what he's done so far, coupled with the breakout he had last year. Awesome. Yeah, we've we've seen what Detroit can do to to guys who want who try to hit for power, right? Uh, like Castellanos when he was there couldn't buy a home run, and now he looks like I don't know Lou Gehrig and. Ted Williams's son or something but Willie Castro is not a nothing in speed which I'm going to say a lot about players because speed continues to be something that's difficult to find although I if I had to guess I'd say it's probably up this year relative to to more recent previous seasons but I think he is a guy who could swipe you some bags and he had a great spring training he did I mean he had three homers and just 52 plate appearances uh, and he was hitting the ball hard then as well so you could say, well, you know, all right, he has a max exit velocity of whatever, but that's up around the board, a stack ass number. Well, he did this this spring as well. So yes, we could downplay the sample size to start the season. But when you combine that with the spring, you can begin to see the makings of a player who could be pretty viable here at just 23 years old. So I like the Castro pick. My first pick was a player, I think, uh, on a lot more people's radars. And that's Jonathan India of the Reds. I think it's a little bit of a surprise that he made the roster, but with Eugenio Suarez moving to shortstop, it's kind of shifted that infield a little bit and opened up a spot for him at second base. We know the Reds didn't properly address shortstop stop during the offseason. They had their shots at D.D. Gregorius. They were rumored to be in the Francisco Lindor trade mix, which I don't really buy too much of. But bottom line, they ended up with nobody. And so Indy has found his way into the lineup and, and he's performed well. This is a former fifth overall pick. There's a lot of pedigree there. We talked about Max Exit Velocity and how it's up around the league. But even though it's up around the league, like I said, in comparison to his peers, he's still in the 83rd percentile in Max Exit Velocity. And that's surprising for him because he's not a he, he's not a guy you think of when it comes to power. He wasn't much of a power hitter in the minor leagues. Granted, his last year at Florida, he had a terrific season. He hit 350 with a get ready for this 1213 OPS uh, in 21 homers in just 300 plate appearances. 1213. Yes. That's yes. 
That you yeah. know what that is? That is the aluminum bat. That is what that is right uh. there. Uh, but with a wooden bat, now this is me kind of showing my roots here in my love of baseball because this was a guy who spent a couple of seasons at the Cape Cod Baseball League here in wonderful Massachusetts, uh, which is completely anecdotal. If anything, it's just that I want to give the Cape Cod Baseball League a shout out here. But that's kind of a, that's a lot of players first exposure to facing elite elite compared to their age level pitching with a wooden bat. And he had only one homer in over 70 plate appearances. Um, And I only bring that up because we don't have a whole lot to go on here in the minor leagues, though. He did have 700 plate appearances and and there really wasn't much power there. So the fact that the max exit velocity is up is, is kind of interesting to me. Like Willie Castro, he's not a nothing in stolen bases. In the minors, he was a pretty average strikeout guy. He was about a 22% strikeout player, but he did walk at about a 12 and a half percent clip, which again, as Chad was saying at the beginning, those are the tools you guys kind of want to look for because they do stabilize pretty quickly. Now, interestingly enough, unless he walked last night, which I don't think he did, um, then he has not walked once this year. Yeah, not once. Right. And that correlates with his more aggressive approach. He's been really aggressive at the plate this year. Um, And that's actually one of my areas of concern for him. So while I'm hyping him up and I like him and I think he could provide some value, particularly once he gains that second base eligibility, we know how thin second base can be. And the Reds, by the way, were the most unlucky offense last year. They had the worst team BABIP by a mile last season. It was 245. That's unbelievable. And that has swung season for a team. It swung so far in the opposite direction. I mean, look at what uh, even Nick Senzel has already walked like five times, a guy I've been hyping in the past. So they're they're kind of clicking on all cylinders, but there are concerns, Chad. And and this was something that that we kind of talked about before. First of all, it's very limited sample, but it's a 50% ground ball rate so far. I mean, that's that's on like 12 pounds. Added balls. So six of them have been ground balls. It's a very small sample, but you know, we, we want to start seeing him hit a little bit more line drives using the other using the opposite side a little bit more. And he's been very aggressive at the plate. You know, another stat that you referenced at the beginning and stuff to look for because it's it's kind of in their control is he's chased 33% of the time. He's got a 33% chase rate, swinging at the first pitch 56% of the time. He, he seems like an anxious rookie looking to prove his worth. And it's worked out for him in a very limited sample, but I could see that leveling off pretty quickly. And if Suarez stinks at shortstop so much that he has to go back to third and Mustakas has to go back to second, I, will India go to shortstop or will he go to AAA? I think that's those are all legitimate questions. Yeah, I think there, there are real questions about his, his playing time moving forward because of that, although the Reds seem committed, at least for now, and... I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure Suarez can be bad enough at shortstop for them to benefit from moving him because their other options at shortstop are so, so bad. So I'm not sure about that. My bigger concern with India is not the playing time, although I think that could be a problem at some point. My bigger concern with India is the lack of power. And not just home run power, but he's just, he hasn't really shown that he can hit the ball with much authority. He's got that max exit velocity, but even in the minors, like his ISOs year by year. So going back to rookie ball, in a 62 plate appearances in in rookie ball in 2018, he had a 283 ISO. Pretty good. Since then, 167, 155, and 108 at his three stops in in A ball, high A, and double A. He's at a 120 in MLB right now. And that's not very good. <laughs> and he's sort of, he's only really getting by on that because of the high BAPIP right now. Um, I think the walks will come with him. He's he's proven from his, his minor league track record that he's a patient guy who can get on base. But, you know, I just wrote up last week, I just wrote up Jake Bowers for a pitcher list. And what I was looking at with Bowers was super patient guy, long track record of the minors of getting walks. And it was always a guy who like, maybe the power will come around, maybe the power will come around. And now we're sort of still waiting on it with Bowers. And Bowers is actually in, in a short, small sample this year. He's had horrible luck. He's one of the league leaders in ex-WOBA minus WOBA. He's finally hitting the ball hard, but it's taken years to get there. And I don't know. I, I look at India and it's like that max exit velocity is really interesting, but his average exit velocity is terrible. He isn't tapping into that max very often. I, I just don't know. I'm, you know, if I look at his his expected stats, his expected batting average is 244, his expected slugging is 400, and his expected WOBA is 280. Now, 
like I said, it's it's hard to know what those stack cast numbers are going to look like as things stabilize and we get a better sense of what the ball is doing and blah, 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 blah. But I look at him as a guy who, if I've got him, I'm probably selling high. And so I am not, if he's unrostered in the league, I might grab him and try to ride the hot streak or grab him, wait a couple weeks and then try to sell him if he's still performing like this. But I'm, I don't know. I'm not sold. Yeah, I don't blame you. I, I actually did sell him in a dynasty during spring training um, before he even had this somewhat hot of a start just because... The, the value is there. I mean, I was able to get Senzel and, and something else for India and something else. I should have looked up the trade. That's not very helpful information. But bottom line, I, I'm not I'm not married to this this player. And you brought up the ISO numbers in the minors. He also never even hit above 270 at any level. So it's not like in the other side of things, you're getting this immense value. But I, in regards to the power, I think we've seen time and time again that players who don't really profile as much of power hitters in the minors all of a sudden come up to the majors and they're, they're 20 to 30 home run hitters. I wish I could come up with more examples. The one that we like to use is Francisco Lindor. I think he's a very obvious case, but at some point that example begins to lose its its glamour when we have to go back to him all the time. But it is that guys just seem to hit for more power at the major leagues. The balls are thrown harder. I, I don't know if they just kick it into another competitive gear because they're all like superhumans, but I think it could come. It's just even with 20 homer power, what is the upside of of Jonathan India over the next couple of years? The pedigree's there, fifth overall pick, but I'm not I'm not at quite as sold on him maybe as some others are. Yeah, I think the thing with the power with him is he relies so much on his walks to keep a high on base percentage and to get his value from that. And if you go back and like you said, his averages aren't super high and you go back and you look at his minor league numbers and he's got a bunch of seasons where he posts WRC pluses that are pretty good. 163, 114, 125, 138. They're almost all with low slugging, fine batting average, and high on base. And my concern is if the power doesn't show up, do pitchers just challenge him nonstop? They're just like, you're not going to walk. Here's a pitch. Hit it. You're going to hit it. You're not going to hit it that hard. You're going to beat it into the ground. And if you bap up your way on base all the time, so be it. We'll live with that. But we're not going to give in and give you walks. And if he doesn't get those walks, where does the value come from? It's early. There's a lot to be seen with him. I just think he went from being this like fifth overall pick. Everybody was excited about him. Top prospect to like, eh, the sheen is sort of worn off. He's not that exciting to all of a sudden in a matter of days, it seemed like this spring, he became a hot commodity again. And I just think people have overcorrected and I'll let someone else pay for that overcorrection. Yeah. In terms of fantasy, actual tangible fantasy advice as well. Like I, if I'm in a points league, I think I might hold on India because I like the idea of this like safe floor on base guy in a great lineup in a great ballpark at with second base eligibility that is kind of attractive to me so i might hold there but i agree with chad if if you're in a categories league and there's somebody who is fawning over jonathan india send him to him get get something awesome in return because i I, in terms of playtime this year like we said who knows how safe that is and overall the ceiling might be a little bit more limited then some might lead you to believe chad we can move on from mr india here who was your second player that you wanted to examine today let's uh let's just keep running through middle infielders i guess uh the guy i want to talk about is jake cronenworth and cronenworth obviously huge breakout last year super popular guy uh in fantasy circles and I, he was another guy, sort of like Castro before. I had him on a bunch of teams. I wasn't really sure what to make of him. Then the Padres went out and signed every middle infielder they could find. And and it, and it was unclear what was going to happen with Cronenworth. And he's had one of the, one of the, the most obvious change to his value is he is very clearly their everyday second baseman, right? It, when Tatis was healthy, he was in every day. Now Tatis is out. He's, I mean, I just, Kim is not stealing his playing time. Profar is not stealing his playing time. Those guys are going to spell him on occasion, but Cronenworth is the second baseman in in a very, very good lineup. So that's the biggest thing with him. The other thing, though, is, again, looking at those plate discipline numbers, uh, going into games today, so since last night, his walk rate is 11.4% and his strikeout rate is 5.7%. He has walked exactly twice as many times as he struck out. Now, those numbers are four and two, four walks and two strikeouts. <laughs> it is early. It is early. It is early. We'll keep repeating that. But he is making contact with everything. And it's almost literally true with everything. His contact percent on the season is 97.9%. His contact rate in the zone is 100%. <laughs> Every pitch he has swung at in the zone, he has made contact with. 
outside the zone, it's 92.9. The way he's able to have such a, that, that 97.9 contact percentage, he's only swinging at 18.4% of pitches out of the zone. He's not chasing at all. He's also being really patient in the zone and finding pitches he can hit. And so I just, I, I see a lot of really positive signs. He was a guy who already got value from great plate discipline. If you looked at him last year, he had a 9.4% walk rate and a 15.6% strikeout rate. Similar numbers through the minors. He is a guy who doesn't strike out a ton and who walks a good amount. And he's just taken that to another level this year. If you want to look for concerning numbers with him. His exit velocity is down. His max exit velocity is down. He does not yet have a barrel. His hard hit rate is down. However, because he's making contact with everything, and Alexander Chase has an article about this on on Pitcher List that I actually, to be honest, have not read yet, and so I don't want to overly uh, (laughs) cite it because I could be citing it wrong, but, but he was looking at the fact that we measure hard hit rates by batted ball event and not by plate appearance. And when a guy is making as much contact as Cronenworth is, that is going to hurt his hard hit rates because there's a lot of pitches that other guys are swinging through that he's finding a way to put into play. And so if you look at it, his hard hit rate isn't great, but if you look at his hard hit rate as a share of swings, when he swings the bat, how likely is he to hit the ball hard? He'd be top third in baseball. Not elite, but if he continues to get on base the way he has and avoid strikeouts the way he has and has a 30th to 40th percentile type, or sorry, not 30th to 40th, uh, 60th to 70th type percentile stack cast, I don't know, profile, let's call it. Like That's a really good player, especially from middle infielder, especially in that lineup. And so again, he he's another guy who, you know, he's rostered in 97% of auto new leagues. He is probably on a roster in any league you're in right now. But he's a guy who, if I have him, I am super happy. I'm starting to think about where he fits into my roster for the long term because I think that he's establishing himself as as part of the future in in San Diego and and in fantasy circles. And if I see him creeping up on trade blocks, I think I'd be willing to buy high on him. Yeah, I, I would as well. I enjoyed his his breakout last year on several of my rosters. And when you look in, again, like we've said for every player, we're going to continue to say the sample size is super small, but it really matters for a player like Cronenworth because before this, we just had 192 plate appearances. We're looking for to expand that sample size. And pretty soon we're going to have a hefty, decent sample size from Cronenworth and we'll really be able to see what kind of player he is. So the fact that that the things that we liked about him last year are really carrying over so far through the first week in spring training and now the playtime looks to be a little bit more guaranteed. We talked about Tatis. I really just don't expect to see him for a long time. Cronenworth is easily, like you said, he's he's head and shoulder at this point better than Profar and and Haseon Kim. So that's not really going to be a threat. And that is still, even without Tatis Jr., a tremendous lineup, like you said. So I I like the pick of Cronenworth. Um, I'm curious what his position eligibility is across different formats. I assume he's got multiple things in Yahoo, but with him being everyday second base, that could long-term limit his value if there's less versatility, if he pretty much stays at second base this year. But that's nitpicking because if we could pick any position other than catcher, we'd want it to be second base. So it's still still a good thing. I'm in on Cronenworth. I like it. Also, random, but the Padres, best uniforms in baseball. I, I love what they've done there. And I, it's... Everything's just sort of coming together for that team, right? The talent and the the uniforms, the uniforms, <laughs> and, but also like the personalities on that team. And I think it's really interesting. I think one of the things that I don't know if I would say worried me, but when they went out and made Hosmer that big contract, and it was all about this, like we're going to prove that we're real, we're going to go out and get this, you know, big deal, we're going to we're going to establish ourselves as a winner. Hosmer is not necessarily. Like he's not my favorite player. He's not the guy whose personality I want the rest of a team to take on. And I was a little worried that they were like going to build a team of Hosmers. And <laughs> the reality is, I think Tatis is just such a force of nature. And that is that is his team. And it's going to continue to be his team. And they are fun to watch. They seem to have a good time playing the game. Did you watch the end of the no-hitter last night? I did. Yeah, I was watching it. Hosmer was the first one off the bench to celebrate with Musgrove. They, they, have, a, and- they have a good culture there. Yeah, and and to be clear, my issues with Hosmer are more like I think he's more of a like play the game the right way kind of guy. I don't think he's like a bad teammate or anything. I don't think he's oh, no, just yeah, not, yeah. he's not fun to me. But that man, it was just fun. That team was so excited. And I know teams are always excited when somebody gets a no-hitter. But the genuine joy and excitement they had for a guy who's been there for a matter of weeks, right? He's brand new to them. And they just were so fired up about it. It's fun to watch that team. It's just fun to watch that team. It really is. And uh, they needed it too. I mean, I, these are, this is like the storylines in any sport. 
They just potentially lost, and again, I hate to keep saying it, but I, I, I don't think we're going to see Tatis Jr. for a long time, and I think I think the guys in that team know that. I think the 10-day, I was listening to Stefania Bell of ESPN talk about this, the 10-day thing, that's nonsense. He's not going to be back in 10 days, and they know that. So for then, Musgrove, the, as talented as he is, you look at that rotation, he could be the fifth starter, for crying out loud, puts them on, on his back and pitches a no-hitter. That's awesome. That is just awesome, awesome baseball story stuff. He's also, he's a local kid. Yes. He's from San Diego. So you've got this local kid, gets to come home and play for his hometown team, and in his second start with that team, throws the first no-hitter in the organization's history. I just, yeah, it's it beautiful. was just awesome. Week one. Week one, yeah. and we have that. That is awesome. So I'm going to continue with our trend of middle infielders. We're on a roll here. We've got four in a row with this guy, so might as well keep it going. And that's Jazz Chisholm. You want to talk about excitement. This dude is exciting to watch. The way he impacts the ball, how fast he is. In 62 plate appearances last year, he walked five times. Through 22 plate appearances so far this year, he's already walked four times. Now, again, sample size, sample size, sample size. But that's significant. I mean, plate skills, being able to get on base... That's going to coincide with a decrease in his strikeout rate, which Jazz Chisholm desperately needs. He's for ever since he's been back when he was a diamondback. It was, yeah, this is a real toolsy raw talent, but there's strikeout issues. There's can he put it together at the major league level and be a competent baseball player? He has been fantastic. I was so glad they gave him that job. Ison Diaz, as much as I like him, he's just a he's a poor man's Rugnan Odor, and and you do not want to be a poor man's Rugnan Odor. There's upside still, but I, he's not a threat to Jazz Chisholm at this point. Now, not everything has been perfect for Chisholm. There's definitely still some cause for concern, but I don't think there's like a there's not an Eugenio Suarez situation like there is with Jonathan India, where I think Chisholm is going to be taken out of the lineup. Some some things to note about him if you're if you're unfamiliar with Jazz Chisholm very fast he's already got two stolen bases this year the max exit velocity this is just 12 batted balls and chad and i have, have harped on this enough to not put too much stock in this but it is 108.6 so that that's that's a pretty solid max exit velocity in comparison to previous seasons which we shouldn't be doing but we should notice it and he's been swinging in the zone a lot more and chasing less so again this this comes back down to the idea that good plate discipline ultimately results obviously in less strikeouts and more opportunities to get solid hits and that's coincided also with an increase in fly balls this year granted that it's, it's an incredibly small sample size but the fact that 50 percent of the balls he's put in play have been fly balls i like that for his homer upside so now all of a sudden you've got a second baseman who has power and speed and prospect pedigree on a team that has no reason to not play him I, something's brewing here with jazz chisholm also pretty fun was watching the marlins game did not know that sandy alcantara told him if he makes the team he has to dye his hair blue which he did and it looks dope so jazz chisholm go pick him up because he is he's gonna be awesome yeah he's super fun to watch i i'm uh i'm nervous about that plate discipline and those strikeouts and i'm not sure he has enough power to make up for that i think that in in five by five leagues or any league where stolen bases matter like i do think he could be a you know 15 home run 15 to 20 stolen base guy he might push 20 20 i just don't know that he controls the strikeouts enough to put a solid enough offensive line together outside of that power speed combo. And he may be able to get a decent batting average. He's fast. And so he should get on. He should be able to, you know, have a relatively high bat pip if he's putting the ball in play. Well, right now that is not playing out, but it could. My my sense is that what you're going to end up with him in a five by five league is a, a decent number of home runs, a decent number of stolen bases. And depending on where he hits in the lineup, he may get a, a bunch of runs. Um, but I don't know that he's going to get on base enough to hit near the top of the lineup. He may be the kind of guy you keep in that second leadoff spot, uh, especially once we get a universal DH next year. Uh, and so I'm, I don't know. We'll see. I'm, I, I think it, he's a guy who really depends on format. I play so much auto new and so many of the auto new leagues I play are not five by five. And I think in those points leagues where stolen bases are sort of devalued, I'm, I'm not sure. I think he's a more fun player to watch than he is a fun, than a, a valuable player to roster in those formats. Uh, but he is super fun. And I think, you know, the the blue hair, like Francisco Lindor did the blue hair for a little while with Cleveland. I think, and you've got this this group of guys like Lindor, like Tatis, who we've talked about, now Chisholm was entering that, who are just clearly out there enjoying the game. 
Javier Baez falls into that group for me. And man, it is just, they make the game so much more fun to watch. So much more fun to watch. And I, I, that to me is the exciting part with him more than the fantasy value. Maybe it's just like baseball needs guys like that. I want to see more of those. I want every team to have a guy like Lindor, like Chisholm, who's just out there loving the game, firing up their teammates and, and making baseball exciting. hundred percent. I, I, I'm still in on, on the Chisholm fantasy value. I hear what you're saying. I think keeper, keeper league long-term though. I mean, there's, there's raw power there. I think, I think he could develop quite a bit of power. It's a big place he plays in. There's great pitching in the division. So Maybe it is a little bit limited, but if we're looking long term, I want I want Jazz Chisholm. I can tell you right now, I'm going to look in our odd new leagues to see who has him, and I, I might offer something for him. With that said, you know the the early playing into that idea of the early sample sizes, you don't want to read into them, let alone a little bit, but really at all. The strikeouts seem to be down for him, but that's partially because the pitchers he's faced so far. You know, the Marlins have faced Glass now and Flaherty. Glass now is tremendous, and and Flaherty, his strikeouts are actually down anyway early in his two starts. Otherwise, they really have not faced any strikeout pitchers whatsoever. So he's really yet to take on that, like you know, Jacob Degrom, or which I think he's actually facing today. So we'll see how he does. But still, I, I I'm in on him. I I want him to be good. I really do. He's like Tanner Houck. Like I just I need this player to be good. Yeah, I, I so I agree with that. I hope he's good. I think I also think he's the kind of guy that in an auto new league, while I am worried about his value there, in an auto new league or another league where you've got 10, 12 keepers, any you know, any big number of keepers, he's a good guy to take a bet on right now. Because if that plate discipline and power come together, and and to be clear, this isn't uh this isn't just wish casting with him, right? Some guys you're like man, if he could just develop a power stroke and stop striking out so much, it's like, yeah, but that's not in his bag. Like that's never going to happen. He could do that. He's got the right skills. He's always like, he's always been a toolsy guy. If he can convert those tools into more power in games and can get his plate discipline improved a little bit, and this has to be a lot, just a little bit would be enough. Then there is, there is potentially a special bat in there. And so I, I totally buy it. I, to me, an auto new right now, he's almost more a prospect than he is a guy that I want to count on to contribute. And I'm watching him closely over the rest of this season. And if he starts to show signs of those things, he for sure could be a guy you're keeping in an auto new league in a, in a 10, 15 keeper kind of thing. I just don't think he's quite there yet. And so it, you know, this gets to this interesting question of like, how do you balance competing now versus in the future, right? If you're, if you're counting on Jazz Chisholm as your second baseman right now, I don't think that's a great place to be. If you're using him as a depth piece who might help you out in the future as your second baseman, that's very different. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like I've got Chisholm in a dynasty right now where I'm hoping that maybe Wander Frank or someone like that ends up also getting second base eligibility so I don't have to completely depend on him as my sole second baseman I do think in Roto and by the way that Franco thing is pure conjecture he's most likely going to come up as a shortstop if not a third baseman but my uh, thought process here is this is a rotisserie league and that's where I think you're going to want your Jazz Chisholm shares is in leagues where that speed will matter because if he is able to continue to cut down on the chase rate and actually start to get on base and walk more which in the super small sample he has that's when that speed will flourish and that's what we really need that's what we're looking for so chat i think it's time we finally chat about some pitching i want to quickly get my guys out of the way and that would be my red Sox. i put down two names i cheated and i put down garrett whitlock and tanner hauk because i think if i talk more about tanner hauk just him i could lose people <laughs> so I'm, I'm not gonna do that i'm just gonna rename this the, the tanner hauk podcast <laughs> occasionally we talk about other players but mostly yes. It's Tanner Houck. Keep or cut or Houck. With that said, Houck dominated Baltimore. It may have surprised you folks at home. It did not surprise me because he is a beast. He had 14 swings and misses on just 85 pitches. I wish he kept going because the Red Sox bullpen that game was not so great. They ultimately did end up losing. As we know, they got swept by the Orioles to start the season. But he was unbelievable. He was awesome. He looked dirty. The slider was clicking. The velocity was there. He was he was up around 95, 94 pretty consistently. And he's now been sent to the alternate side. Which stinks, right? And and obviously in more short-term leagues, that's going to limit his value. But we're looking long-term. And even this season, I would be hesitant in deeper leagues to all of a sudden abandon my Tanner Houck shares because look at the Red Sox rotation. It's actually pitching pretty well. They're, they're off to a good start. 
But if Perez, Pavetta, and or Richards all don't stink their way out of the rotation, it isn't like Sale when he returns or Evaldi or Erod or Richards himself have been like beacons of health over the years. Like there's no question in my mind that Hauk is going to get another opportunity. It's just how soon is that going to be? And I I actually think it's going to be pretty soon. We'll see how Richards does today against Baltimore. But Hauk's been awesome. 33% CSW. He did get another inning of of relief against the Rays. He let the inherited runner on second base score in extra innings, which wasn't great, but he still struck out two in an otherwise pretty perfect inning. So totaling six innings pitch, I should uh, should say, seven hits, one walk. 10 strikeouts, 16% swing strike rate. This is the exact start I wanted Hauk to get off on. So before I dive into the even lesser known player, Garrett Whitlock, any thoughts on Hauk in the early going here, Chad? No, I mean, that that 10 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio is pretty exciting. Uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that just you, you want to see a young pitcher like that showing that he can he can get the swings and misses he can he can set guys down which he's done and then he can do it without putting a bunch of guys on base and if you look last year even in his his impressive debut last year as three starts he was striking out a lot of guys he was walking almost five guys per nine he had 11.12 k per nine 4.76 walk per nine like that going looking at percentages 33% strikeout rate 14.3% walk rate like those are just too many walks and he wasn't going to survive like that this year he's got the strikeouts up to 38.5% and the walks down to 3.8%. And that's like, you know, on the one hand it's just however many six innings he's thrown or seven innings <laughs> he's thrown or something right, six innings. So it's it's a little early, but even if he had walked three guys instead of one, that would be an improvement in his walk percentage. And so there, there's some real movement there, I think. Uh, and that's gonna make a huge difference for him if he can keep those walks down. So I'm, I'm with you. I think, uh, I picked him up recently in an auto new league. I'm grabbing him there where he's available and I have the space for him. Uh, and that's, you know, I think one of the things that we, we didn't really talk about at the beginning, but I think is important to think about is, when you're making decisions about guys to pick up right now, the decision, especially in a keeper league and a dynasty league and an auto new league, the decision you need to be making is not like, do I want to give up on this guy who I rostered a couple weeks ago? It's, is this guy I could pick up more valuable, more exciting, more interesting than, than the guy I, I have. And, and Hauk is a guy who, in, you know, sometimes I have rosters where like I desperately need every inning and I don't have the space to have a guy who's not getting innings in the rosters where I do have that space. He's near the top of my list of guys. Who I'm like, man, I think there's something special. Here. Yeah, he, he that, that's a good way to look at him. And I'm glad you brought up the walks. It really should have been the first thing out of my mouth because in spring training, he was a player. Obviously, I was watching very closely and he had, I want to say, like four appearances and two of them. He looked like Randy Johnson and two of them. He looked like he was pitching in like Babe Ruth league with 15 year olds because everything was all over the place. He had an astronomical amount of walks. So it was really like, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from Tanner in the, in spring training, but to see it, that kind of start again, who cares that the sample is small. We want to see a decrease in the walk. So a 10 to one ratio is pretty awesome. The other one I wanted to focus on before we get into your final player here was Garrett Whitlock. This is, this is an even probably deeper leagues, but it's still a name to look out for because of how dominating he has been. And he's been awesome uh, in two relief appearances so far this year. I think he's just 24 years old. Now, so far, the stats look good. 33% CSW, 15% swing strike rate. So that's that's pretty close to, to Tanner Houck there so far. It's just through five and a third innings pitched. He's only allowed three hits and no walks. And that's with eight strikeouts. Now, granted, both appearances were against Baltimore. But what I liked about the appearances is that they both went longer than one inning, which kind of tells me the Red Sox do view this guy as someone they can kind of stretch out and and hopefully one day get into that rotation. And I've gone over my concerns with the Red Sox rotation just a few minutes ago. There's, there's going to be opportunity. I not only think we see Whitlock 
as a, as a starting pitcher at some point this year. I think Connor Siebold is also going to emerge at some point as well, but that's, that's just going, going too deep here. Nevertheless, he's looked dominating. He's going to need to add a third pitch. If he wants to be a starter, he's completely dependent on that sinker and that changeup. He has fooled around a little bit with a slider and threw a four seam fastball at some point. I think the ideal pitch to add to that would be the slider to kind of give him three pitches at three different speeds. The fastball does come in hot. The changeup is in that low eighties. So if he can get a slider in there at a, at a middling volume, I, I really like the pitch mix that, that he would be able to approach hitters with. So I think there's upside and I think there's going to be opportunity because that Red Sox rotation as good as it's been and as good as I think it can be this year. I do. I, I think there's some raw talent. There's, there's still going to be opportunity um, over the course of this season. Yeah, I think for sure there'll be opportunity. I think the other thing that's good with Whitlock is he was a rule five pick. And so as a rule five pick, he's got to stay on the roster all year. And he's been good enough that you know that if they if they try to move him down, if they try to demote him, send him to the alt site, whatever, the Yankees are going to take him back. And they're not going to give him up easily, right? So if you when a guy's taken in the rule five draft, he has to stay on your active roster the entire next season, or else you have to offer him back to the team that you took him from. And if you offer him back, it's like <laughs> they can ask you for a lot. Like they can you can work out a trade, or they can like ask you for some. You can pay for the player, or something like that. There's, there's you pay for the rights for the player. There's a bunch of stuff that that comes into play there. But in general, if you got a guy who's been as good as Whitlock's been, all the all the Yankees have to do is say, "All right, we'll make room for him on our roster instead," and they can have him back. And I don't think the Red Sox are even going to think about risking that. And so. Whitlock, whether or not he gets stretched out and goes back into the rotation at some point, we'll we'll see. I think that's in his future, if not this year. But he's going to be on that roster, and he's going to be throwing innings, and they're going to be using him all season because they can't afford to demote him. Because not because they need him for depth or anything, but because they can't risk losing him. He's proven himself to be too valuable, and so that that that's a case where being a rule five pick, I think, really plays to his advantage. It definitely does. But it, it, I mean, honestly, that wouldn't even have popped up on my radar anyway, because the Red Sox bullpen has kind of been in shambles for a few years now. Even in 2018, it was like when they won the World Series, finding the end game there because Kimbrel was falling off. Now, obviously, Barnes has looked terrific, and Ottavino's there, which is a nice addition. And maybe even Hauk begins to come out of the bullpen, although I wouldn't really like that. I want to keep him stretched out as a starter. What they need Whitlock. He's he's arguably been their best reliever this year in those two extended appearances, which again is just, it's just five and a third innings pitched. But for a team that has such a such a shoddy bullpen, he's he would have hung around, I think, no matter what, I guess is what I'm trying to say, because he has really been that good. Yeah, I think the question would have been, do they send him down to get stretched out again and then have him work on adding another pitch and like basically decide that his future value to them is higher if he spends July and August in AAA, getting himself shaped up as a starter, and then comes back for a September cup of coffee before joining the rotation next year. Like you could see that path for him. Like that's that's a guy like Garrett Crochet with the the White Sox is in a similar boat where they're using him as a bullpen piece. He's been excellent, but they still have talked about his future as a starter. He could go down for a while. Not because he's not valuable to them, not because they don't need him, but because his long-term development is best helped by going down and working himself out as a starter for a little while before he comes back to help. Um, the Red Sox won't be able to do that with Whitlock. And right. so they will either keep him in the pen all year or they'll find a way to stretch him out with some long relief and piggybacking appearances until he's ready to go. Uh, but either way, as a fantasy player, like take advantage of that. He's going to be there. You can count on That's him. a really good point. And, and it probably does actually limit his upside this year because unless in those relief appearances he's able to develop that third pitch i i don't know if the red sox are gonna i mean they're competing right now they're above 500 i don't know if they're gonna risk rolling him out there just to work on something like he'd be able to do a triple a so that's that's a great point so chad i've been teasing it now for a few minutes i, I i'm really interested to hear what you have to say about your final pitcher here so tell us about this blue jay <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm super interested in Steven Matz. And to be honest, he's a guy I've been interested in for multiple years, and that hasn't always worked out. But Matz has been... like First of all, I think people forget how good Matz has been in the past. And if you go back and look at what he did in the earlier part of his career, he was on a, his way to establishing himself as a key part of a very good Mets rotation for a while there. And it it obviously didn't work out. Uh, it's it's been 
it's gotten ugly. But he's come back this year and or even last year. So last year got super bad, right? And to the point that the Mets were done with him. But he had a career best K rate. He had a solid walk rate. He was just super, super homer prone. And he was super homer prone because his his ground ball rate plummeted and his fly ball rate shot up. And so when that happens, like you're going to give up a lot of home runs, especially for a guy who already gave up a good amount of hard contact. In one start so far this year, and I believe he's making a second today, he's improved that already career best K rate. He's improved his walk rate. His ground ball rate is back up at least through one start. His CSW is up, his swing strike rate is up, his chase rate is up. He's still giving up hard contact, but with everything else moving the right direction, and I am super intrigued by him. He turns 30 in May, so he's not young. I don't think he's the kind of guy who's going to play his way into, you know, you're playing in a, a league where you're, where you're keeping three. He's not likely to play his way into those three. Um, the reality is at this point in the season, the three you kept from last year are probably the same three you're planning on keeping for next year as of now, and nothing has changed that in a week. But Matt is a guy who, in deeper leagues, where you might be keeping certainly auto new leagues, um, and any league where you're keeping 10, 15 guys, like we've talked about a couple times, like he's playing his way into being a back-end keeper in those those situations. It's one start. I don't know how many times we can caveat how little data we have right now, (laughs) but you combine his previous success, his track record, his, I don't know if pedigree is the right word, but maybe it is, probably it is, with what he's done through at least his first start this year. And I'm really, really intrigued by him. I've, I've added him in some redrafts where I need pitching depth. I am certainly adding him in auto new leagues where I'm looking at guys who can not only provide me pitching depth, but can can turn into keepers in that format. And I just, I mean, I don't know. I look back and like his first two years, 2015, 2016, it was a while ago. He made six starts in 2015 and 22 in 2016 with FIPs of 3.61 and 3.39. And even as recently as 2018 and 2019, he was putting up ERAs just below or just above four, which is not great, but he's been fine. And he just had that one terrible year last year and everybody just wrote him off. And I think he's got a lot of talent. And I, right now I'm, I'm betting on that talented arm having figured out what it needs to figure out. And something else about Matt's is that I think he's kind of gotten labeled as an injury prone guy. And maybe that's fair. Maybe it's not. But I look at 2018 and 2019. He made 30 starts both seasons. I think he's more reliable. And maybe that's me being way too relaxed with that term. But I do. I think he's maybe a little bit more reliable than some people might think. Now, granted, they weren't they weren't pretty seasons entirely, but they were fine. And so if I have a Steven Matz for $1, $2, $3 and not new, I'm actually pretty excited about that, to be honest. I mean, I totally agree. Like you said, 30 is not, not young and I'm getting a little self-conscious here because I'm, I'm 29, but it's not old. (laughs) Like he could, he could totally have some solid seasons ahead of him. Uh, I I like it. I like it. He could have a, you know, pitching in Dunedin, this year, who knows how that's going to go? I think there's there's still a lot to be seen, and I don't know if his one start was at home or not. Not that it would really even matter if that one start was at home or not. But you're right; he's he's a player to keep an eye on. Who knows how it's going to go this year? But and obviously, how it goes this year will dictate his future value uh, significantly. But I'm I'm not out on him either. I think you're right. I think people have written him off. I wish I grabbed him in more NFBC fifties where I could have just had him like in the forty seventh round and just had an arm that on certain weeks I could lean on. I think he fits that profile well. And in those deep keeper leagues where there's a price attached, the price on mats is nothing. And he does still have some upside in that arm. I like it. I think that's a good pick. You're making me feel making me feel old because <laughs> I got I got like a good decade on you. You're like, oh, 29 now hey man you were, which, the, you were the one that called 30 old <laughs> i said i said he'd still be useful for the next couple of years i think i i think it we do have a tendency in the baseball world to think of 30 as old and i think there's there is especially with pitchers good reason for that but um i also think we talked about this in i can't remember it wasn't last episode or it might have been the one before that we talked about the, the discount you can sometimes get on older players. And I think Matt's is one of those guys. People are like, oh, he's not a young breakout guy. He's just like an old veteran who might 
you know, maybe he'll have a few good starts and everyone's just down on him because of that, I think. And that's or at least partially because of that. And man, if he's good this year, I don't see any reason to think he won't be next year or the year after. Like he'll put together, then he's 32, 33. You start to really worry about decline at that point. I get it. But right now, no, I'm not worried about that. Yeah, absolutely. And he's not even a guy that really depends on velocity that much. So at age, I'm, I mean, well, actually, you know what? The sinker, 95 miles an hour, maybe he does a little bit, but I think he can still, he's got a deep enough repertoire. I think he'd be fine. So Chad, we have discussed extensively some middle infielders. We got my Red Sox bias fit in there and we've talked about Steven Matz. It's time for the odd new question of the day. So here it comes. I, I had a hard time wording this question, but I, I think I think you'd be able to follow. So let's let's dive in. If you have a $50 player, so you know somebody who's just a stud, like I, I don't remember how much I'm paying for Mookie Betts, but I've got Mookie Betts, all right? And Mookie Betts is going to perform like Mookie Betts and he's performing like that. So you've got a $50 player who's playing like a $50 player. Someone who say, yeah, I got a lot invested, but I like it. It's working out. But you know, you're, you're going to want to cut him before next year's auction. Like you're looking at your team and you're like, ah, you know, after arbitration, the $2 increase, so on and so forth, this is probably a guy I'm going to have to cut. Are you more likely to trade that player or to just ride him out and then let him go into the auction? Because obviously, you know, this has to this obviously has to do with not only the player himself, um, but also if you're competing or not. And I, I realize that's so what makes it an oddly like specific question. But early in the season, you might not know how competitive your team is going to be. And early in the season is when you're going to get the most value in a trade because the person who trades for him is going to want to get would rather get a full season of Mookie Betts than, you know, just a couple of months. So it it is kind of a decision you have to make regardless of whether or not you're going to be that competitive or not. So is parting with a major stud even when you're competing a solid strategy to continue being relevant or is that something you avoid altogether? And I think I know your answer, but I'm curious to see. Yeah, I think so. First of all, just a little context here. In first year auto new leagues, so leagues that are sort of drafted fresh, there's about nine guys. Um, there's about nine guys who are going for more than fifty dollars on average, and so those that gives you a sense of just like you know what do you mean by a fifty dollar player? Um, it's it's your top ten your top ten guys basically. In established leagues, it's going to be a few more than that because there's been inflation over time and some guys have, have gotten more expensive, but maybe your top 15 to 20 guys. So that's 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 the range we're talking about here. So you're talking about a, an, a first or second round pick in a standard league performing like a first or second round pick. I, I think the short answer here is if you're competing, you can't trade that guy away. And the reason is the economics of auto new will encourage bad teams to sell those kinds of players. And if there are, you know, 15 of those guys, some of them are on bad teams. And what that means is those teams are going to try to sell those guys and those guys are going to get bought up by other competing teams. So if you're competing and you've got Mookie Betts and you trade him away at the same time that somebody else who you're competing with trades for Christian Yellick, let's say, you've you've taken a pretty big hit there. And the only way to avoid taking a pretty big hit there is if you're able to trade Mookie Betts away in a deal where you bring back the same amount of present value. And if you're doing that, well, there's two things. First of all, I don't think there's a good way to trade, like go out and trade Mookie Betts for three guys and have those three guys add up to being as valuable as just Mookie Betts. Um, they're using up two additional roster spots. They need to be in two additional lineup spots. It's, it's just really hard to do that. Second of all, if you're doing it because you're trying to maintain your long-term viability as a competitor, then when you do that, you're trading for future value. And any future value you get comes at the expense of present value. So now you're you're not only sort of breaking up Mookie Betts into you know four quarters instead of the dollar that he is, but your those quarters are only worth fifteen cents each right now because you expect them to be worth more in the future. And I just I don't think you can consistently compete that way. Now I do think there are cases where you can do stuff. So like I'm in one league right now where there's a team that needs a third baseman. I need starting pitching. He has Garrett Cole and is willing to trade Cole. I have Anthony Rendon. Right now, I'm not willing to trade Anthony Rendon because I don't have another third baseman. But I could see a situation where if I could get a third baseman, I would trade Rendon for Cole. They're both expensive players. They're both sort of full price. I'm not sure either of them are keepers, but that's a different situation. But if you're taught, would I trade 
Rendon in that league for guys who I think are going to make me better next year? No, because I think I take too much of a hit. I have been in cases, rare cases, where my team is so good and I'm running away with a league that I've done that. But that's in like August, <laughs> right? When I'm really confident that this is that that, that lead's going to hold up. I'm not doing that now. Yeah, I I don't think you can do that when you're competing. Uh, not not and still have hopes of competing. I think as soon as you trade away a guy like Betts, you've you've decreased your chances of winning almost regardless of what the return is. You're more likely actually if you had a thirty dollar Mookie bet somehow, which would be amazing. You are actually more likely to be able to find some team that's willing to give you five star players that are overpaid for a $30 Mookie bets and compete that way. So I just think like if you have a $50 Mookie bets, you're just not going to get enough of a return for him to make yourself better in the future and make yourself keep your competitive space now. That makes total sense. I mean, like like usual, the new question of the day is personal, at least a little personal to my team. Uh, I started off having a great week, but it looks like I'm going to lose both of my my matchups. It, it, my pitching has been weird. Like I thought it was going to be terrible, and it is terrible. But there are guys who are awesome. Like Julio Urias looked incredible. Matt Boyd's looked improved. But my quote unquote ace, James Paxton's probably done for the year. So I'm at a real weird spot. And you brought up that last bit at the end. Like if you have a cheaper stud maybe that is actually a better piece to move because i'm not ready to pack in the season here not with this offense and i have a 28 dollar trey turner which like blows my mind i know stolen bases aren't worth as much but trey is not just a steel specialist trey is a bona fide stud um and not only that but he's in my utility spot so perhaps that is a move I can make where I ship him off. I don't have a whole lot of cap flexibility at the moment, but if I could get some maybe maybe cheap stud starting pitchers for a cheap Trey Turner, maybe that's that's the move to make. But um, awesome stuff. As always, Chad, with the ought new question of the day. That's going to do it for us, folks. Thank you for listening to episode 10. Please subscribe to us. You can subscribe to the Keep or Cut, Cut with a K podcast, wherever podcasts are subscribable. Also, give us a follow on Twitter at, at Keep or Cut. I can tell you I am going to start being a lot more ac- active on that Twitter account and on my personal Twitter account as well, which is at PP Baseball. And make sure you give Chad a follow because he's not only churning out content on the podcast, but he is writing for pitch list like a madman that is at chad young folks thanks for listening we'll see you next week